you have your Bible today, please turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And if you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black pew Bibles on the end of each pew. And it should be on page 573 in that Bible. If you don't have a Bible at all, then, uh, then take that one. It's our gift to you. Maybe read it in the new year. Let's read... Oh, wrong bookmark. There we go. Let's read from Isaiah chapter 9. I'll start in verse 1, even though we're, we're concentrating on verses 2 through 7 today. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I hope you guys had a good Christmas. Christmas is over. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, there are those who say that there's 12 days of Christmas, but none of us really like that song, do we? And as Christmas comes, there's this funny thing that happens in the world where it's kind of like it's obvious that the world is just asleep to the things of God on a regular basis. In the Christmas season, there's that undefinable thing that sometimes people call the Christmas spirit, which uh, feels a little bit like something has, has made the world sort of stir and roll over in its bed and, and realize maybe there's something more to this life than this, but then after Christmas, it's like the world just rolls back over, gets ready for New Year's Eve, and goes back to sleep to the things of God. Well, we're instructed in... New Testament to preach the word in season and in out. And so we can actually keep on preaching that Christ has come into the world and been born for us and is the light of the world that we need. And we can keep doing that year round. We're looking here at this prediction, this prophecy in the book of Isaiah that Jesus would be sent, that Jesus would come as this light into a darkness, as this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace the child who would be born to us. As we look in this passage, what we have is uh, something that's connected to the last passage that we looked at, which was on the evening of the last Lord's Day at the candlelight service. Back in chapter 7 sort of started this section of the book of Isaiah. Uh, and in this section, Isaiah is prophesying under the rule of King Ahaz in Jerusalem. And this is probably around 735 to 733 BC, and so quite a while before Jesus was actually born, actually came uh, in the flesh into the world to save us. 
But in that, you saw uh, in, in Isaiah 7.14, as we looked at last time, this prophecy that had come uh, where he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she, he shall call his name Emmanuel. And this is actually connected to that and explaining that and fleshing that out a little bit more. And so when we come to chapter 9 that we have absolute certainty that the prediction in chapter 7 was not just about the baby who was born in chapter 8 named Mahershalel Hashbaz, but that there's somebody who's coming after him that he was pointing to that's going to fulfill all of these prophecies, who was born not just of a young woman but of an actual virgin, who is not just a gift of God, but who is actual Emmanuel, God with us, who is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In, in the context and what's going on here in, in this history with Ahaz being the king in Jerusalem over the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom at that point, the Ahaz was, uh, was sort of looking at what was going on in the world, and there were all kinds of threats. The kingdom of Assyria had already attacked the northern portion of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is when Israel was divided in two. The northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. They had already attacked the northern portion, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the land where one day Jesus would make his home and grow up in a city called Nazareth and minister in places like Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee, this Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. That area had been overrun with enemies. And as Ahaz saw that, he said to himself, I am going to get on the side of those guys. That's not a good idea. But he was trying to make an alliance with Assyria. He was facing attack from the northern kingdom of Israel. Can you imagine that? Combined with the kingdom of Syria, which confusing because there's Syria and Assyria. But just all this to say that there was all kinds of tumult there was all kinds of difficulty. There were wars. There were rumors of wars. Part of the kingdom had already been taken over by enemies. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. And in the middle of that, there's a lot of unwillingness to listen to the Word of God. The people, it was told back in chapter 8, verse 19, what, what were they going to do? Were they going to listen to the Word of God? And it said, no, when, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. That means go to the word of God. And if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn or no morning light. So that's the darkness that they're in. There is this great darkness, a darkness in terms of the prospects for the future that they're facing as things look really bad, and a darkness in terms of the light of the Word of God not shining because they're not looking at it. They're looking other places to try to get a supernatural word for what to do and how to navigate those difficult times. In the middle of that, there's this prophecy. This prophecy from God through the mouth of Isaiah the prophet saying, I am going to do something about this darkness, something about this difficulty, something about this bondage, and what am I going to do? I'm going to send a son. So let's look first at verse 2, the blessings of Christ, the blessings that Christ would bring. The first blessing that he lists here is the blessing of light. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. He said just a second ago in verse 1 that he, he's referencing the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. As I said a second ago, that's the land kind of up near the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have a picture of, of Israel in your heads already because you've been looking at these maps in the back of your Bible for years. And, and if you don't have a picture, that's okay. But it's up in the northern part of Israel. And he's saying there's darkness because they've been taken over. But also, not just darkness in terms of things looking bad, but, but that darkness of not hearing the Word of God. Well, what, what does God say? He says, they've seen a great light. It's interesting that this is in the past tense, isn't it? He, he, he's, he's not saying, well, I think that this already happened. It's that God is giving this prophecy in such a way that it's so certain that he can speak of it as though it's already happened. It, it is so certain to come to fulfillment that he can say, it's like it's already done. That's, that's a little lesson. That's not the big lesson here, but that's a little lesson about the Word of God. The Word of God is so certain that you can speak of it as though it's already done even though you haven't yet seen the fulfillment of all of the promises and the hope that we have in Christ yet. But he said, they have seen a great light. Those who land in this dark, dwell in this land of darkness, on them the light has shone. Where does that light come from? Well, it comes from God. Who's the one who said, let there be light? It's God. Who's the one who separated the light from the darkness and called the one day and the other night? It's God. Christ is called in, in John 1 the light who has come into the world to shine into the darkness. Christ is the one, for us who believe, Christ is the light who has shone into our hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of this light. And how is he bringing this light? Well, it says it in Matthew 4. You might even want to put your finger in Isaiah and turn to Matthew 4, because this actually quotes uh, the, the first two verses of Isaiah 9 and says, here's how Jesus is fulfilling this. It says in Matthew 4, verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Remember that Galilee of the, the nations? There it is. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Well, what's the light? How did Jesus come? Well, Jesus himself is the light, but what did he do to start bringing the light? Here's what he did, verse 17 of Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach. This is how he's, he's bringing the light. He's bringing the word of God. He is coming as the great ultimate prophet, the one like Moses, but greater than Moses, who is bringing the word of God. He began to preach. This is the light. And what's his sermon? It's the exact same sermon that John the Baptist was preaching. And here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amazing. Matthew says, this is how Jesus was bringing the light. He was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
In John 3, Jesus would go on to say that when people want to remain in the darkness rather than believing in Christ for their salvation, when they want to stay in the darkness rather than accepting the light of Christ, that the reason that they want to stay in the darkness, according to Jesus, is that they don't want to come into the light and have their sins exposed. He'll give all kinds of reasons, but he says this is the real thing. When people don't accept the grace and the forgiveness and the eternal life that Jesus offers, it's because they either don't want to admit that they need it, or they don't want to give up the things that make them need it. They just don't want to bring their sin into the light of Christ. And that's part of even what was going on, part of the trouble that was going on in Isaiah's time, is that people had the option here, we could go to the Word of God, but every time we open up the Word of God, it seems like it doesn't really tell us exactly what we need to do about this situation in front of us. It seems like the Word of God isn't talking about how to defeat the Assyrian army or, or how to make our crops grow better or, or things like that. It seems like the Word of God is just constantly telling us to repent of our sins. And so rather than go to that, let's go to fortune tellers. Let's go to somebody else who's going to give us a supernatural word from God. Sometimes the way that this works out, even in Christian lives, even in well-meaning Christian lives, is to say, okay, well, I need guidance for my life. And when I open the Bible, I know the Bible's good. I know the Bible's the word of God. But it's just talking about things like how I should be holy and how holy God is and how, how I should adore him and love him and that doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not I should buy this house or that house. And so I need a different sign. I need to start reading the, uh, the circumstances of my life and, and listening for little bitty miraculous things that, that God would bring into my life to, to, to tell me what I really need to hear. Guys, don't do that. Don't go off to the darkness of pagan myths of how to hear from God. Go to the light of the Word of God and you'll find that it has something very similar to that very simple first sermon that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what that is? It's good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because King Jesus has come. And what do you do? Repent, because it's here. Turn to Him. That is always what we need, but we need also to have a trust in the Word of God to say, Jesus, my great high priest and my king, is also my great prophet. And when I open up the Bible, I see that I have the Word of God that's going to shine light into my heart and my life rather than go off to these other things. Christ ultimately is that light, and Christ brought that light. If you want to have light in your life, if you want to have a Word from God, Open your Bible. Maybe have a Bible reading plan too, right? Secondly, blessing of Christ is joy. Verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says here, for one thing, you've, they've multiplied the nation. Now that's something that kind of hints back to the reign of Solomon. Solomon was the last king where the nation had actually been multiplied. Solomon was the last king who had ruled over a united kingdom of Israel before it split in two under the oppressive rule of his son. 
And Solomon was the last one where the nation said, this is thriving, we are expanding, we are growing, things are getting better and better. So that multiplication of the nation kind of hints back to that time and it shows, hey, something that hasn't happened is going to happen again. But it's going to happen in an even bigger way. It's pointing forward to the real son of David. Not Solomon, but Jesus. And it says that the joy is going to increase. Now it doesn't say that they're going to increase joy by having a big harvest and by dividing a lot of spoil. But it does say they're going to have joy as with the joy of the harvest and with the dividing of the spoil. He's saying here's some analogies for how big the joy is going to be through this Christ who is coming. You've got on the one hand the joy of the harvest, which is, hey, things have come together really well in peacetime. With all of the work that we're doing, it's paid off. And you've got the joy of the spoil, which is the joy of victory in war. And saying in wartime, things came together, and it worked out well for us. And he's not saying, well, I'm, I'm going, if you trust in Jesus, I'm going to make you always win and always wealthy or something like that. But he's saying, here's a little bit of an analogy from, from wartime and peacetime and all kinds of situations. There is going to be great joy. It is going to be multiplied like, uh, like never before. This is fulfilled in Christ. Remember that angel announced when Jesus was born in Luke 2, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now us who know Christ, once you've come to faith in Christ, it's actually possible to have joy. Did you know that? It's actually possible to obey this command of Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. This is good news of a great joy. This is joy that's multiplied. And how is that possible? Well, part of the way it's possible is by the Spirit of Christ, who is with us, who grows us in what's called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But hear that joy? I, I want to know, do you need joy? Do you need joy? I want to know where you're looking for it. Are you looking for joy in relief from the things that discomfort you? I don't want you to be discomforted. There's value in the Scriptures displayed of things like being healed of your sickness. That is a good thing when that happens. There, there is value in the Scriptures of family relationships going from turmoil to peace. There's value to that. All kinds of things that you could say, well, this thing is robbing me of my joy. But I want to assert to you today that if you don't have joy in the middle of your troubles, you're not going to have joy when the troubles are relieved either. Because you know where the joy is found? It's found in Christ the command in Philippians 4.4 is rejoice in the Lord always. Not rejoice in the easing of your circumstances. Or rejoice in forgetting your troubles. It is rejoice in the Lord. And He is the true source of joy and eternal joy. When you know Him, you know your future. 
you know that the promises are true. You know that no matter what you go through, you're not walking into a wall. You are going through it on the way to glory. That's where we have our joy is in Him, in the Lord, in Christ. And that's why in the coming of Jesus we can say, you have increased its joy that they rejoice before you. So that's part of the joy. Jesus said that, by the way, too. In, in John 15, He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If you're short on joy, I don't have time to go there and preach an extra sermon even though I want to on John 15 right now. But maybe just take some time in John 15 this afternoon. See what he says about that, how your joy may be made full as you abide in Christ. Verse 4 tells us another blessing of Christ, which is freedom. Freedom. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You hear those things? The yoke, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Those things kind of call back to Egypt to start with. Remember what was going on in the opening chapters of Exodus? Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the people of Israel had found themselves in Egypt, which initially when God sent them there, it was a way for them to be rescued from, from famine. But over the years, uh, they became oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. And the Egyptian taskmasters were looking at the Hebrew people and were fearful of them, wanted to do anything they could to bring them down, to try to make them have less babies, uh, to, to try to make them lose their, their identity as a people, all kinds of things that they wanted to do. But they were doing things like saying, you're the brick makers for us, and we know that having straw to make these clay bricks is something that's really helpful, so we're taking that away, and we want you to make better bricks, and we want you to make more bricks, and we want you to make them faster, and no Sabbath for you, and you better get this done, or we're going to beat you. That's the kind of thing that they were under. Well, how did this yoke of burden, how did this staff on their shoulder, how did the rod of that oppressor, how did that get taken away? Was it because they learned the art of war really well and managed to stage this victorious battle against the Egyptians? No. It happened because God miraculously sent ten plagues on the Egyptians until finally Pharaoh couldn't take it anymore and he had lost his firstborn son, as had every family in Egypt. And they finally said to the, the Hebrews, we can't take it having you here anymore. Please just take our gold and go. And they plundered the Egyptians without having ever waged a war, and they ran out into the wilderness. And as they were running out into the wilderness, Pharaoh changed his mind and said, no, I need my workers back, and sent his army out there with all of their chariots against this people who had never learned to pick up a sword in their lives, pinned them up against the shore of the Red Sea, and they started to look around at Moses who was leading them, at the sea on one side, at the Egyptian army on the other side, and to say, why did you bring us out here into the desert to die? Why are we here? But do you know what God did? He told Moses, point your staff this direction. And he parted the Red Sea. And the people walked through it, probably about 16 or 17 miles on dry land. And the Egyptian army said, we're going to get them. 
And as they walked through and came out on dry land, the Egyptian army walked in, and you know what God did? He slammed those waters back in on them and took out the Egyptian military. Who won that battle for them? Who freed them from their oppressors? God did it in such a way as to prove that He would do this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to just skip down to the, the big ending of this whole passage at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The other thing that he says, this doesn't just hearken back to Egypt. He says explicitly in verse 4, as on the day of Midian. Now that goes back to a story that rhymes with Midian, which is Gideon. In the book of Judges, as, as the Midianites had taken over a portion of the land of Israel, they had put the people there back in bondage, this, this bondage, this oppression, almost like they had experienced, uh, or had their forefathers had experienced in Israel. And they were crying out to the Lord for deliverance, and what did God do? Well, He raised up this guy named Gideon, who had no experience in the military, who seemed like the wrong guy. He, he himself told God all about how he was the wrong guy for this. But God raised him up anyway. And, and he gathered together this great big army of many thousands of people. And what did God tell him to do? He, he told him to send this group home, send that group home, send more and more people home until he only had 300 guys left. And, and you can't, you know, with this kind of this kind of warfare that they had back then, you, you cannot go against an army of many tens of thousands with 300 guys. It would just be a massacre. But what did God do? He gives them, He gives the enemy these, these fears that they're going to be destroyed. And, and then they, they gather on the mountains around, on the hillside, and every one of these guys has a horn and a lamp and a jar over his lamp. And at the same time, they blow their horns, they break the jars, these lights come on. And what happens? All of those Midianites in the camp, they just freak out. They say, we've been invaded, we're going down. They start swinging their swords. They defeat themselves. But really, who defeated them? That was God. God did it in such a way as to show really, really clearly I did this, not you. That's the kind of thing that he's saying here when he talks about Christ being the one who delivers from the yoke of burden and the staff of shoulder and the rod of the oppressor. He's saying you've broken it as on the day of Midian. The point there is he is going to do it himself 100%. He, he, he is going to be the one who grants this freedom without you having to participate in granting it for yourself. Another way to put it is that he is going to save his people from their sins by his grace alone. You need to know that. What is the oppressor that Jesus came to save everybody from? There's all kinds of oppressors. You, you could, maybe you think that you need to be saved from an oppressor right now. Maybe you have somebody who actually is oppressive in your life, and I, I hope that that ends I really want that to end. But maybe you think that your biggest problem in your life is your boss. Or kids, maybe you think your biggest problem in your life is your parents. Maybe you think that your biggest problem is a, is a bad political party that's always up to no good. Or the system that's rigged against you. 
or whatever other kind of thing you could come up with. The list could go on forever. But what did Jesus say? What does the Bible say that Jesus came to set us free from? What oppressor is it? Matthew 1.21, He will save His people from their sins. Of course there can be real oppression in this world. But the biggest one, the one that we absolutely must be set free from or else, is the oppression, the slavery of our own sin. And Jesus does that perfectly. Jesus said this in John 8. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, that's what you need. You need to be set free from the oppression and the slavery of sin. Whether you think that something else is your big problem or you think that you have never been under any oppression by anything, Jesus came to break that yoke and that burden and that staff on your shoulder and to set you free from sin. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1 says. Jesus also came to bring peace. This is another of His blessings. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled with blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying, I'm going to do away with these curses in the world like conflict and war. You know when that's going to come ultimately? It's, it's going to come ultimately in the fact that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's going to be when we're with Jesus face to face, when we've been raised from the dead, when we see Him in the new Jerusalem. It's going to be done. He's going to win the battle once for all and bring peace. I'll talk about peace more in just a minute when we get to where it says He's the Prince of Peace. But let's go to verse 6 and let's talk about who this is. Who is it that's bringing these blessings? Who is the promised one, this promised Savior, Messiah? Well, it says, first of all, for us, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. It says the one who's coming to do all these things, to bring this light, to bring this joy, to bring this freedom, to bring this peace, to bring all kinds of other things that we could list beyond that too, the one who's coming is a child and a son who's born. What does it mean that he's a child? Well, it means that he's the one that was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. The one who was born of a virgin. Born of a woman who would come as a real human child. What humility for God the Son to do this. To come as a child. When it says a son... In the context of what, what he's going to say in, in verse 7, we know that it's, it's talking here about a son being given from the line of King David. King David who was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be somebody who would sit on his throne forever and ever. 
and rule in righteousness. This, this son is Jesus, the son of David. This is also telling of the fulfillment of the promises that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where he said to Satan, God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's kind of really the starting point for the redemption that we see throughout all of Scripture. Man fell into sin, and when sin came, death and misery came with it and all of the curses that are along with it. But there was a prophecy right there in the middle of those curses where God said, Satan, somebody's coming from from the woman, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush you. And a promise to the people in that. There's somebody who's coming who's going to undo sin itself and all of the curses that came from sin. He's going to undo it. He's going to be the son who's born. You see this traced through the book of Genesis and promised in, in the person of Abraham. Or not the person of Abraham, but in the line of Abraham and his offspring. Seems that it's going to come through the line of Judah, where it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah. It's going to come through the line of David, who has these promises. And Jesus is the one who is going to come. And Jesus is the reason, when you go through your 2024 Bible reading plan, He's the reason why you're going to read through all of these long genealogies in the Old Testament. And sometimes you get to those parts and you wonder, why do I have to read this today? Well, when you read that, you can just remember what's being looked for here is when will the son of the woman finally come who's going to crush Satan's head and do away with the curses? Well, it comes down to Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and he says the government shall be upon his shoulder. And you hear that and you think, boy, well, that means he's going to like take over Congress or something? No, what this means is that he can handle governing. He can handle being king all by himself. Do you know Moses couldn't handle governing? And Moses was good. I, uh, don't get me wrong. Like, Moses was way better at governing than I could ever be. But Moses also was so worn out that his father-in-law said, you can't handle this. You need to gather for yourself from all of these tribes and, and from the, the families here, you need to gather for yourself 70 elders to help you out with this or you're not going to be able to sustain this. He could not handle the weight of the government on his shoulders by himself. But do you know who can? Jesus. He can do it. He can do it all by himself. It says here that he is a wonderful counselor. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You know what that means? It means miraculous counselor. One who is miraculously, supernaturally wise in knowing what to do, in knowing the truth, in understanding things. The kings and presidents in this world, they have to hire all sorts of advisors to gather around themselves. Sometimes they get in trouble because they, they listen to the wrong advisor, and in those kinds of situations, they love to throw that advisor under the bus. Or sometimes they do really, really well because they listen to the right advisor, in which case they love to take credit for themselves, don't they? But they have to have that. We would all have to have that. We all have to have that. We need advisors and counselors and those who help us see the things that we don't understand and know what to do 
and to walk in the right way. Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus is his own miraculously wonderful counselor, his own advisor. Romans 11.34 says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Nobody. You know how he works? According to the counsel of his own will, the Bible says. Wonderful counselor. He always knows what to do, how to lead. If you wonder to yourself, when are we finally going to get a president who just always knows the right things to do? Never. But we have King Jesus who does. Always. You can also, when you know this, you know that you can listen to the Bible, by the way. Kind of already talked about this a little bit with the light coming and shining into the darkness. But if you're going to have the Scripture in your heart, you're going to have the wonderful Counselor speaking to you on a daily basis. That's what we need. You, I'll skip that. All right, the next thing he calls him is, his name will be called Mighty God. Mighty. That, he has all power. He is, he is able to do absolutely anything and everything that he could ever possibly will to do. He is mighty. Another way to put this is that he's omnipotent. But you see here that this child, the son who is promised, is called not just mighty, but mighty God. That's interesting, isn't it? It shouldn't have been too surprising when Jesus came and people were wondering is this really the Christ? It shouldn't have been too surprising when he made all kinds of statements to call himself God. When he called God his own father, making himself equal with God, and therefore they wanted to pick up stones to stone him for that. When he called himself the great I am, and therefore they wanted to stone him to death for that. When he was standing there on trial before the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, and they said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he quoted Daniel 7 about himself and said that he is the king seated on the eternal throne. And they said he has committed blasphemy. He deserves to die. Jesus plainly called himself God. And if he is the Christ, it shouldn't have been surprising because it says right here in Isaiah. It said it already back in Isaiah 7.14 that this one born of a virgin would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it also says right here, that this child, the son who is given, would be mighty God. There have been attempts over the centuries to say, no, this doesn't really mean what it seems to mean. It doesn't really mean that he's God. And those attempts come from two main places. One is the theologically liberal circles where they just deny that Christ could possibly be God. It also comes sometimes from Jewish circles where there's a resistance to recognize that their own Hebrew scriptures plainly state the Christian doctrine of the deity of Christ. But it does say this. It says it very plainly that He is mighty God. He is not just a baby born in a manger. He, he is the God of heaven who has come for us. And it calls Him next everlasting Father. The everlasting part is, is that's God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not going to come to an end. There's not going to be a time when you say, boy, the reign of that king was great, and now he's dead. What are we going to do? No, he is the everlasting Father. And when it says Father here, is this to, to us who are thinking in terms of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
You say, boy, this is mixing up the Father and the Son in ways that they're not supposed to be mixed up. Well, probably more than likely when it says Father here, it's talking about the rule that he has as king over the nation. It's talking about his position as the one who is to be obeyed and revered as the leader of the nation, the, the father in that sort of a sense. Just as it's right to take the fifth commandment, which says honor your father and your mother, uh, to take that and to apply it as it's applied throughout Scripture to all kinds of ways that we are to honor the authorities that God puts in our lives, well, Jesus is that ultimate authority. He is our everlasting father and ruler. And then it says he is uh, the prince of peace. The prince of peace. We've already said that this is part of the blessing that Jesus brings is peace. How does he bring peace? How is he the prince of peace? Well, at least four ways. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I need Jesus to be our prince of peace in terms of making us no longer God's enemies in our sin, but making us justified. And how does that happen? It says, by faith. Trust in Jesus, and you will no longer be an enemy of God. You will now be on the side of the prince of peace and right with God. Another kind of peace he brings is in Ephesians 2.14, where it says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both, that means Jews and Gentiles, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so in the cross, Jesus bought peace between believers of all backgrounds in every place. So we can say no matter what kind of worldly divisions there may have been in Christ, we are one people at peace and love one another. He gives us peace in terms of the kind of peace that's often called shalom, this peace that is an all-around well-being. Second John verse 3 says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. He is the one who can make things right and ultimately will in the new heaven and the new earth. And he gives us peace in our hearts that passes understanding as we trust in him. It says in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, too, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace that he brings up in us. Now, this is all under Christ who is reigning, who will reign. Verse 7 we're going to speed through verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's saying Jesus is going to rule and his rule is going to grow and his rule is never going to end and he's going to show forever and ever that he is king. This is a fulfillment of that promise to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But this is something also that was so easy to misunderstand. When Jesus came, there was this expectation, okay, he's here. Time for him to get on the throne. Time for him to reestablish the united kingdom of Israel and to overthrow the oppression of the Roman armies and 
Time, time for us to have our politics back. And, and, and even after Jesus had done his earthly mission of dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead to set us free from our sin and to bring us into the kingdom that he told Pilate as he was on trial that my kingdom is not of this world. For if it had been of this world, my disciples would have been fighting. Even after all that, even his own disciples were still having trouble wrapping their minds around this. And they said to Jesus right before he ascended back into heaven, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, hold on, Jesus. You're not about to go back to heaven without setting up you know, something a little more concrete politically for us, are you? You know what he says? He said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what you're going to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you know Jesus is ruling right now? And do, you know, do you know Jesus is expanding his kingdom right now as we who trust in him and are filled with the Holy Spirit, go and are His witnesses where we live and beyond that all the way to the ends of the earth, as He keeps on raising up more and more of these pure wheat plants, even in the middle of a field full of weeds, as He puts it in Matthew 13, as He is growing more of His disciples in the middle of the sinful world, He is ruling. He is reigning. And you know what? One day, He's going to come and he's going to put to death all of those who are his enemies. He is going to ultimately establish his throne forever and ever. He is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. But do you know what? It says right here, his rule will increase. He will establish it. He will uphold it. And he's doing it now. And you say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't see Jesus ruling right now. What do I do? Well, here's the instruction Jesus gave in Luke 19 as we're waiting for Jesus to come back in the parable of, of the talents, he says he called his servants and he gave them these ten minas and he said to them, engage in business until I come. Saying, okay, I'm already the king. I'm already ruling. What do you do until I get back to business? Do what God has given you to do faithfully and preach the gospel faithfully and trust that I'm building my kingdom and that I'm coming to establish it in person forever and ever. So, all this put together, you know what we need to do? We need to look to Christ the King. Jesus is the light who has come into the world, the light who has shined into the darkness, the child who is born, the son who is given, the King who is ruling and will rule. Submit yourself to Him. Submit yourself to Him in the light that He has shown us which is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Trust in Jesus, have your sins forgiven, and trust that he's ruling as we go about our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. It's unspeakable, it's beyond our understanding, and yet it's so simple as well. Lord, we are those who are sinners, enslaved to our sin, 
reluctant to come to the light lest our deeds should be exposed, and yet Christ has come out of love to shine the light. God, I thank you for those of us uh, who, who are gathered here, who have come into the light of Christ, who are no longer defined by our sin, but now defined by the light of Jesus. Uh, but God, I pray that you would keep on breaking that, uh, that oppression, breaking down that sin. But God, I especially pray for those who are still in the darkness, uh, who, who are still looking for various other things as their guide to life, whether it's their own hearts or signs from outside or some uh, competing demonic religion that they would follow after. Father, I pray that they would see the light of this child who was born, the son who was given. I pray that you would grant them faith to receive him as wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And Lord, help us to live in joy under the Lordship of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.